like to start all my interviews off with a little bit of a softball here. Um, <laughs> what was your first job in the movie and TV industry? Oh, that was, uh, I, I like to say it was uh, working on the classic film, American Kickboxer 2, uh, which was a kickboxing movie uh, shot in the Philippines mainly. Um, but I started as an intern and then wound up being sec second assistant director. I wrote additional scenes. I got, I acted in it. So if you call it that, I got shot in the chest twice in two different scenes uh, and then was post-supervisor and assistant editor. So um, there's an old adage that you learn more from working on a bad movie than you do from a good movie. And uh, let's just say I learned a lot on that movie. <laughs> Um, who were some of the early, early on in life, who were some of the writers and directors that you kind of looked up to? Uh, well, it, it's funny. It was, uh, I literally had a poster of MASH, you know, Robert Altman's uh, classic film uh, above my desk when I was writing the script to uh, Omaha, the movie, my first film. And then when I went out to Omaha to find a local producer, uh, they said, uh, the film commission said, oh, there's this guy, Dana, out here who does construction during the day, and, but he produces commercials and he wants to get into features. And by the way, his grandfather's Robert Altman. And I said, well, he's hired. So, um, so that was pretty amazing to like, you know, have a hero, you know, whatever, some, you know, filmmaker that I really looked up to and then, and then getting to know him, you know, and, and getting great advice from, from him. And he kind of mentored us on that first film. And, you know, to this day, I still use some of his techniques for, you know, miking actors individually and, and that kind of thing. Um, Harold Ramis was another one who, who I admired and also was very generous with his time and, and gave me great advice. He said, you know, uh, rule number one, uh, hire Bill Murray. Rule number two, turn on camera. It's like, okay, that's great advice from Harold Ramis, you know. So anyway, so I was, I was lucky to get to know a, a few of these folks, uh, you know, before they moved on. 18 and a half is about the White House transcriber who's thrust into Watergate scandal when she attains the only copy of the infamous 18 and a half minute gap in the Nixon tapes co-wrote and directed the film. What made you want to bring this to life? Uh, yeah, uh, I, you know, I'd been fascinated by Watergate for a long time. I was a history and political science major in college. Um, and I knew some, a couple of the people's kind of tangentially involved with Watergate, mo most prominently Thomas Eagleton, uh, who had been Govern's first running mate until he was kicked off the ticket rather unceremoniously. Um, uh, he, he was one of my professors and mentors in, in college. Uh, but then I worked in Washington for a couple of years. I was a speechwriter for, for Tom Harkin, uh, who's senator from Iowa, who was part of the 1974 Watergate class of Democrats that, that got elected to the House. Um, but I worked in journalism, too. So I sort of, you know, was immersed in that world of D.C. for a couple of years before I went to a graduate film school at, at USC. And, um, and so I've thought about Watergate for a long time. I've written about it in other contexts. And then, um, but this movie was really precipitated because um, my last film, Bernard and Huey, was uh, the last day of shooting was on the uh, election day, November, 2016. Um, and that day I was going out to see uh, Jules Pfeiffer who wrote Bernard and Huey, who's 
who lives out on Shelter Island at the tip of Long Island. And, um, and we were inevitably talking about the cartoons that he had done for of Nixon and Watergate in the early 70s. He won a Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning for them. And, you know, uh, talking about Watergate and impeachment and, you know, what could possibly go wrong in the next four years. Um, and then that night, I kind of coincidentally was staying with my friend Terry, uh, who had been with me to see Pfeiffer. Uh, and Terry owned this motel called the Silver Sands Motel uh, in Greenport, Long Island. We took a ferry across to see it. And this place had been built by his uh, grandparents in the 50s and 60s, and, and he had been running it for the last few years. And uh, <coughs> he, it, he'd been, he kept it preserved, you know, as a vintage place. And so he, I mean, it's a working motel in the summer, but he would use it as a location shoot for mainly um, high-end fashion photography. High-end models would come out there for Vogue and Harper's and that sort of thing. But no one had ever shot a feature. And he said, hey, if you come up with something, you know, we're closed in the winter, everyone on the cast and crew can stay out here. And I was like, hmm, Watergate, great location. Let's make a movie you know like the indie film gods are talking to you when they present a location like that to you and um and then i teamed up with my uh, uh screenwriting friend daniel moya and then coincidentally his aunt and uncle owned a, a vintage diner just down the street from the motel and we were like well that's two locations now we have to make a film so uh yeah so that was that was kind of how we got it take yeah. me back to the casting of connie and what about willa made you say this is my Connie uh she was the first one we met with uh <laughs> um yeah she was recommended by an agent uh, a friend of mine who who had recommended other people to me on other films and so I trusted his his opinion and then uh Daniel and I met with her she was literally the first one we met with about six months before we started shooting so it was kind of before we even really had started casting it was just kind of a casual meeting it didn't you know we, we weren't offering the part at that point um, but it was great. I mean, she she's very smart. She's funny. She's likable. Um, she's theater trained, but has done a lot of film and TV. So, it, um, and and she came also recommended by my friend uh, Lucky McKee, who uh, who had worked with her on a film, and he said she was great to work with. And that's honestly that's one of the things I look for most in actors is how are they going to be to spend three weeks of your life. Um, with and um and and he said she was great so we you know th considered other people in those intervening months but then really kind of came back around to her um you know like just about a week before we started shooting uh but she she was great and and offers an amazing performance and was great to work with and she brought her dog goose out to the motel and so everyone loved goose you know what, what's not to love about a dog named goose and um who i think was still a puppy then and, and we all just had a wonderful time out there yeah i think that's one of the things that i also found fascinating about what you did with this film right you know what i mean there's the story's been told so many different times whether it's documentaries whether it's movies but this is kind of told from that perspective from this you know particular person this couple that connie and paul couple there you had a lot of of mystery kind of intertwining in between all of this just take me behind kind of building that uh, mystery throughout the film kind of because yeah. as, as an audience viewer it was like for me it's like man I have no clue what's happening or gonna <laughs> happen you know what I mean and, and, but yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat you know what yeah, I'm saying so good. kind of take yeah. me behind that 
Well, I, I think part of it was we did a lot of research. Uh, I mean, I was pretty familiar with Watergate, but there's still so much that you don't know. Um, and, and, and Daniel, who's younger than me, he was still learning a lot. So it was, um, uh, but in doing the research, we found that, you know, Nixon actually had about four or five different offices in the White House complex um, that had this voice activated taping system. And there really are tapes of Nixon listening to tapes in one of those rooms and, and fumbling around with the buttons too. And, and once we realized that this was a plausible thing, that there are tapes of tapes of people listening to tapes, then it became like, ah, okay, that's our way into the story. It is now then plausible that someone could have a tape of the deleted 18 and a half minute gap, uh, which we all know was deleted. So, um, so then that gave us, uh, that helped us figure out, well, okay, who's Connie? Connie's a transcriber. She gets a hold of one of these tapes um, and she tries to leak it to a reporter and they run into nefarious people and weird people along the way. Um, uh, so that was, you know, that was kind of our way into the story. And, you know, and, and, and it is a real, to this day, it's a real mystery. What was on the tape? who deleted it and why did the burglars even go to the Watergate? That's still kind of a mystery too. So, you know, so it's great when you're playing with these things that we know are real mysterious things that will probably never get solved because most of those people are dead by now. Um, then it, it just, it, it leaves a, a world of opportunity for speculative historical fiction. Let's put it that way. I think another thing that I love is is it just wasn't John and and Willa that really kind of stood out to me. You mm -hmm. had some great uh, foundation there with uh, Bonnie Curtis Hall and Catherine Curtin. I I love the dynamic between the two of these. Yeah, it, it was just funny because I think that's some of the moments that I found myself in that mystery. You kind of balance some some funniness, and our introduction to these two characters was obviously you know we think that they're just normal everyday people. Um, <laughs> Take me behind that part of that story of, of, of trying to write a little bit yeah. of comedy relief within this mystery <laughs> that you're building. Well, you know, one of the my first pitches to everyone was, um, you know, it, it should be it should wind up being like three days of the condor meets who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but a little funnier than either of those. And um, and hopefully we achieved a small measure of that. Um, so, yeah, so this dynamic with this older couple was kind of always, you know, pretty much baked in that that there would be something weird going on with them um part of it was also i wanted to explore generationally what was going on in 1974 which is kind of a very unique and specific year because it's kind of before what we think of as the 70s it's a couple of years before disco um but you know the vietnam war was just winding down the the hippie generation was turning into cults and other weird things um and uh and, and the World War II generation was still middle-aged at that point and, and only 20 or 30 years away from World War II. So how did that reflect on, on them and their attitudes and feelings and musical choices? And, uh, you know, we lean into the bossa nova with that. And um, so, so part of it was exploring kind of this, these clashes of different cultures and, and, um, you know, uh, and and what this older couple would bring and contrast with this younger couple at that time. Um, and then we just had this amazing cast that really brought them to life with Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin. And both of them were just cast about 36 hours 
minutes before we started shooting. So we had, um, we had some other people that dropped out and, you know, for whatever reasons, but so, you know, they came into it super fresh and we had no time to rehearse. And, and I remember talking to Vondi and he said it was great because the other two actors, Willa and, and, and John, and John Magaro, they, um, they didn't, had no idea what was going to come out of their mouths. And, and Willis said this too. She's like, yeah, that it was truly their real reactions some of the times because it was the first time they were seeing how kind of weird and outrageous uh, Vondi and, and Kathy were. And yet Vondi and Kathy have this amazing chemistry between the two of them too. So it's great because it's kind of two different love stories that we're telling here. And, um, and that to me was just you know, that was kind of a refreshing discovery almost in the performance that like, wow, we're really telling a couple different love stories here, you know, in the midst of a Watergate thriller comedy. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I know you guys started filming, started principal filming and then stopped because of COVID. What was it like trying to overcome that obstacle? Well, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we started shooting March 3rd, 2020. What could possibly go wrong in March of 2020? So, um, and I remember like on our 10th day or so, someone from the DGA came out to visit the set and said, wow, you guys are like three hours away from New York. You're all staying in this wonderful bubble out here in this remote motel and, you know, keep on going. And by the way, you're one of the last film shooting in North America. We were like, what you know we had no idea we we had known that you know we were getting like sporadic information like everyone you know so oh my gosh south by shut down and broadway shut down and the nba shut down um but we didn't realize that like every film <laughs> around the country was shutting down so the next day after our 11th day uh, and we had four days left to go uh, we we shut down as well, and I just grabbed a hard drive and came back to LA. I was the one person really from LA. Everyone else was New York based, and about a third of our crew, kind of the single Brooklyn hipster types, they all stayed at the Silver Sands. They stayed on the set um, uh, for two more months because they figured it was safer than going back to New York, and they were probably right. Um, and actually, our cinematographer, she stayed for six months. Um, and, um, and yeah, so during that six months, we took a pandemic pause or healthy hiatus, and, and I worked on editing the film, but we were, that also gave us a chance to record the, the voice performances, Bruce Campbell as Nixon, John Cryer, Ted Ramey, because those guys were just sitting around at their respective houses around the country, and actually Ted was in Canada, and we're like, you know what, why don't we just do this over Zoom, instead of trying to get people together at a studio sometime in post-production, which we don't know when or how that will be we were able to to do those performances over zoom at a time when no actors were doing anything you know so these guys were just like desperate to do something creative and it was a lot of fun for for them and and we got it all done um and then we were also working on music that whole time too normally you do the music you know when you're done in post-production but we had uh, my composer Luis Guerra is a good friend we'd worked on the last film together and we'd actually started working on some of the music some of the bossa nova tunes even before we started shooting but like while we we're still working on the script but then what during that six months we're like all right well again musicians are sitting at home with nothing to do they can't perform so we had a group of uh, horn players in mexico city we had a singer in uh, who's brazilian who performed in la and brazil for us and um and it was great we added 
a lot more songs and 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 music than probably would have been there otherwise yeah it's just kind of fascinating how um, I mean, you obviously could have taken this time just to pause and, and just kind of reflect. And, but it's it's nice to, it is, because I've talked to a lot of different actors over the last year. It's been like, mm-hmm. you know, these some of these Zoom jobs have come up, you know, Zoom movies even, per se, yeah. kind of really yeah. opened the door for, you know, to stay creative in that time, which, you know, I obviously kind of probably helped you along the way as well, being able to stay creative in that time yeah. where we're kind of put in a box. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, I was editing every day, but also I, I developed a good sourdough starter. So I was baking sourdough every day and then smuggle that sourdough back into New York in September, 2020 for those last four days. Cause I had to quarantine for two weeks at a cabin on the property, just like the characters do. And uh, so I wound up baking sourdough for the cast and crew every day. Um, which that seemed to work. <laughs> I might, might have to get that recipe. Um, yeah, yeah <laughs> it, right, it so, was cinnamon, cinnamon rolls, sourdough cinnamon rolls. They love them. Oh man, that actually sounds, I'm hungry now. All right, yeah. so <laughs> uh, my last question for you is throughout the making of this entire project, the start, the stop, the, the filming, the editing and stuff like that, what's something you learned about yourself throughout the project? That I could bake sourdough. Uh, I'd never done that before. So, I mean, I'd done other baking, but not, uh, I wasn't a big bread guy. So, um, uh, yeah, and you can survive without yeast. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think, I think the big lesson for me, or which was reassuring was that like, I didn't panic when we had to shut down, we shut down. And fortunately, and unfortunately, I have a enough of a history making these indie films and i've had some things i had one film years ago that shut down with five days left to go and we've and to this day i've never made it you know uh but i've had a, a, a but i've had other experiences where you know major catastrophes catastrophes have happened you know the 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 film got stuck in the lab and we had to reshoot an ending to to my first film and that worked out okay in the end and actually in some ways better so having that kind of you know history behind me i think helped in saying okay let's not panic let's just you know shut down because we need to shut down and we will be back one way or another whenever it is safe and and we are able to do it and and as opposed to everyone else on the cast and crew who, were, who had never, you know, everyone was devastated. I mean, we all were, but, um, but I was like, it's okay. We're going to get through this one way or another. And, um, you know, we'll just be patient with it. And we were, and we were patient in post-production too. We didn't rush post-production because we were like, well, there's no, you know, festivals are all virtual for that first year. Um, theaters are all dark. It's like, there's no real rush to finish this thing. And then, you know, and then we came out strong once festivals were live again. We started playing at, at uh, I call them the trough festivals uh, because they were in the uh, in the fall and the trough between the Delta and Omicron spikes. And, and there was like two and a half months where there were live festivals. And then in the spring again, between the Omicron spike and uh, and World War Three or monkeypox, whatever it is next, you know. And um, and then now we're, we're playing at, uh, you know, we're going to play at theaters while, theaters are hopefully still open uh, starting next week. (laughs) 